We're still in the Psalms, just a little respite, a little refreshing oasis, not that you need one when going through Romans, but a little break, and we'll be back in Romans in the early part of September. So open your Bibles, find Psalm 16. And kids, preschool through fifth grade, really happy that you're here too. Thanks for joining us again. Make sure you've got your Bibles out. So not just under your chair, not just in your backpack, get it out and do your best to find Psalm 16. Maybe your mom or dad can help you or somebody nice next to you will help you find it. Find it and make sure you've got your activity sheet out and available as well. Well, the Compton family just returned from our annual kind of pilgrimage down to Florida. We, we go every August. It is not cold down there this time of year, just in case you wondered. It's the only time my whole family, brother and his wife, my dad and mom, it's the only time we can all get together. It's really great. And on the flight down this year, I did something that I don't normally do. I paid close attention to the pre-flight instructions, especially the how do the life vests work part of the instructions. Why? Why did I do this? Well, I just read a book about a ship that sunk a hundred years ago in the Atlantic. It's called Dead Wake. Maybe you've heard of this. And it's the story of the Lusitania, that huge British ocean liner that was torpedoed by a German U-boat off the coast of Ireland in early 1915. The the Lusitania was a huge kind of four-stack steamship. Uh, 32,000 pounds in weight, displacing even more tonnage. Did I say 32,000 pounds? It's tons. It's huge. When it was made, something like 1906, it was for a time the largest ship in the world. And on its final trip from New York over to Liverpool, England, final trip, it carried a total of 2,000 passengers. 124 of whom were children. But of course, that's not why people write books about the Lusitania, isn't it? Is it? People write books about the Lusitania because it's sinking, it contributed to America giving up its neutral status in World War I and joining, throwing their, uh, their flag in on the side of the Allies. It was one of the things, not the only thing, but one of the things that brought the U.S. into World War I. Now, the Lusitania, for a ship that size, as you'd expect, had lots of lifeboats, kind of smartly placed all around the ship, and every cabin was equipped with life vests. Everybody had one assigned to them. And there were others, again, placed around the ship. The trouble was, once the ship was torpedoed, everybody panicked. Not surprising, but everybody panicked. The torpedo hit, and it was chaos on the deck. And as a result of that, people had trouble remembering how the lifeboats worked. In fact, as, as you read the book, you, you, you read these sad accounts of, of people barely getting into the lifeboat and it being unhitched too soon and it dumping its passengers out headlong all the way down into the Atlantic. Worse... In the kind of tumult, people forgot how their life vests were to be put on. They forgot. In fact, survivors, they vividly recalled the tragic sight kind of dotting the wreckage 
of passengers drowned, floating upside down, because they had put on their life vests incorrectly. You know, panic, trouble, it does stuff like that, doesn't it? It, it kind of clouds our vision, it, it clouds our mind, it, it makes us forget things, it, it disorients us. It, it's like getting turned inside out and upside down by a wave. A big wave crashes against you, and before you know it, you're kind of eating sand face down in the bottom of the ocean, wondering what happened. Trouble does that to us. You know, on our way, before we got on the plane, we were in the Milwaukee airport, and I saw this sign that I kind of enjoy seeing every time we go there. It's just beyond the security check. Maybe you've seen it. It's a place called the Recombobulation Area. You know this one? Only in Milwaukee. It's, it's a, kind of a fun word to say besides that. It's a place where passengers, they can recombobulate after they've been discombobulated by the security check. By removing your shoes, your belt, your watch, your wallet, your phone, your, your laptop. By putting your carry-on and your kids' carry-on on the, on the conveyor belt. And, and doing all this just as fast as you can. Because you're surrounded by a sea of other people trying to do the very same thing, aren't you? What you need in a time like that, what, what you're longing for is a place to recombobulate, to reorient, to kind of sit down, catch your breath, and put your shoes back on. And that's just what we find in this psalm that we'll look at today. You could call it a recombobulation psalm. It's a reorientation psalm. It's for people who have been knocked down turned upside down and inside out by trouble and who simply need help getting back on their feet. Is there anybody like that out there this morning? I'm sure there is. Just need help getting back on your feet. It's a psalm for people who have been torpedoed by life and whose minds have clouded with fear and whose fingers are kind of struggling to remember how the life vest buckles. It's a psalm for people in trouble. And I'm telling you what, it is full of encouragement. In fact, I was trying to describe to my wife, it it's almost feels like this psalm has so much encouragement, it's hard to even get our arms around it. It's so brimming, chock full of refreshment. Here's what it does. This is what its message is. It preaches the good news that not only can you get back on your feet after troubles knocked you down, but you can sing and dance. Not only can you get back on your feet when you've been swirled around by life, but you can stand up on your feet and sing a new song, even in the darkest valley, even through the darkest night. So I trust you found the psalm. Let's hear what God has to say to us in it this morning. This is Psalm 16. This is the word of the Lord. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. 
The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What a beautiful part of the Bible, isn't it? Let's pray. Let's ask God to help us hear what he's saying to us this morning. Would you join me? Father, open our ears this morning to hear what you're saying to us. Don't let us fail to get every ounce of goodness out of this part of our Bibles. Especially help those who come in today who are in the middle of trouble. Open their ears. Give them eyes to see what you have revealed. As a tender shepherd, Father, lead us by the still waters of your good word so that we might be refreshed to continue on our journey. Give us grace to hear, but more than that, God, you have got to give us grace to believe what we read, to believe it, to grasp it with our heart of faith and not let go. Father, be generous in your gifts to us, we pray this morning. Amen. Well, this wonderful little poem shows us that there's a way to stand, and better than stand, there's a way to sing even in the middle of trouble. There's a way to find encouragement, like soul-refreshing, soul-reorienting encouragement even in the dark. The psalm tells us, this is its two parts, the psalm tells us that we can sing. That's the first thing it shows us, your heart can sing. And second, it simply shows us how. We'll look at both of these first. Your heart can sing even in the middle of trouble. So let that kind of settle in over you. Your heart, it can sing even in the middle of trouble. The psalmist, it's David, King David, we know this guy. He tells us this right in the middle. Look at verse 9. David says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. David tells us here that our hearts can be glad. Our whole being, that's, that's all that makes up the inner part of you. Your mind, your will, your emotions, that inner part of you. Your whole being can rejoice. Even your body can dwell secure. That sounds pretty good. David starts with the heart because he knows that the heart is ground zero. In the Bible, the heart is where everything begins. Maybe you've heard people say this 
what I'm about to say. You surely haven't said it, but maybe you've heard people say, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. You know that one? You've probably heard people say that. Well, in the Bible, that's true for the heart. If the heart is healthy and happy, so is everything else. One of the Proverbs says it like this, a joyful heart is good medicine. Joyful heart, it's good medicine. But a crushed spirit, a crushed inner man, it dries up the bones. Do you hear that? As your heart goes, so goes the rest of you. It's no surprise then that David starts here by talking about the heart. If your heart is encouraged, if your heart is gladdened, so will the rest of you be. In fact, that's what David says. My heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, and my flesh, that's his body, my flesh also dwells secure. It's very simple, don't miss it. Your heart can sing, it can be glad, it can rejoice, and your body, it can rest. It can dwell securely even in the middle of trouble. Don't miss that, that's what it's telling us. You can get back on your feet, you can find encouragement even in really hard places. David did. Look at verse 1. Listen to the spot that David was in when the psalm starts. Verse 1 says, Preserve me, O God. It's a prayer. It's an urgent one. Preserve me, O God. He goes on, In you I take refuge. David's in the waves right with us. He's in a spot where he needs God to preserve him, where he needs God to give him a refuge. In fact, what he says in verse 10 may even suggest that his very life was on the line. Look at verse 10. Notice what he says there. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. David is in a place that required the rehearsal of that truth. You're not going to let me stay in the grave. There's life after death. David was in a place where he needed to hear just those words. And maybe you are too. Maybe that's exactly the place you're in as you come through those doors this morning. And what God tells you here is that you can have a glad heart. You can rejoice. Your body can rest secure. Not, not outside of trouble. Don't, don't be deceived. It's not outside of trouble. It's not after trouble. It's right in the middle of trouble. Your heart can sing. It reminds me of what we find Paul doing. Remember on his second missionary trip, he's just come off from modern-day Istanbul, crossed over, and he's in Philippi. He's like far away from home in a foreign city. The day starts pretty good there in Philippi. He heals, heals a girl, but then it quickly turns south. Healing the girl starts a riot. The riot ends up getting Paul stripped and beaten put in stocks, and thrown in prison. And then Paul does this. Okay, And not only does he do this, but he does it at midnight. This is Acts 16.25. About midnight, Paul and his traveling mate Silas, Paul and Silas were praying and they were singing hymns to God. I mean, just a picture of that. Here's the guy in stocks. They're around his ankles. His shirt's off. He's got blood drying on his body from the beatings that he's received. And he's singing. And he's praising God. Maybe trouble's taken your song. 
Okay, maybe it's muted your voice. Maybe it's stolen your tune. And maybe, just maybe, you come in here this morning and you think, I may never sing again. It's okay to admit it. That's, that's what we do around here. We talk to each other about these things. And you're in good company. It's the spot David was in. It's why he wrote the psalm. And it's why God put it in our Bibles. God is telling us here that we can find real joy right in the middle of real trouble. You can do it. You can find real joy right in the middle of real trouble. Not outside of it again. Not after it. Not just once it's done. You can find it in a prison cell with your feet in stocks. So if trouble's turned your world upside down and inside out, God is telling you that it's possible to regain your footing. You can regain your joy. Which begs the question, how is that possible? That's what we want to know, isn't it? That sounds really great. How is that possible? Well, that's what the rest of the psalm is all about. That's what the rest of the psalm is doing. It's answering the question, how? It's the second thing we'll look at today. This is what the psalm is about. How can your heart sing? How can it sing in the middle of trouble? Well, the key is found in the very first word of verse 9 and in the very first word of verse 10. In fact, if you read the psalm too quickly, you probably just passed right over those words. You might have missed them. This is how verse 9 begins. Therefore, you see it there in your Bibles? Therefore, verse 9 begins that way. This is how verse 10 begins. For, maybe you've never exalted in conjunctions before in your life, but you should now. And these two words, we find the key to how our hearts can sing in the middle of trouble. Both words are like hands, and they're grabbing, they're clinging on to the beginning of the psalm and to the end of the psalm. Both words are telling us that joy is possible based on, grounded in, supported by all the other things that we find David's saying, real joy in the middle of real pain is fueled by, it's based on, it's tied up with, it's grounded in what David says before and after verse 9. So think of verse 9 like this. Think of it like a beautiful flower. Maybe it's a rose, maybe it's a tulip. It's probably not a dandelion. Okay, think of verse 9 like a beautiful flower and the rest of the psalm as its stem. Verse 9 flowers precisely because of the rich nutrients provided by verses 2 through 8 and verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 flowers from the confessions found in the surrounding verses. There are seven of them, and they overlap a little bit. They repeat themselves a little bit. In fact, this week while I was preparing this message, I thought, you know what I'll do? Seven seems like a lot, although it's a biblical number. Seven seems like a lot. Maybe I'll categorize them and reduce them down to one or two. But the psalm doesn't do this, and it doesn't do it for a reason. The psalm is perfectly content to repeat itself here and there. Why? Well, if you've ever sat next to the bedside of a dying saint, you'll understand. You think, if I just read through Psalm, one, Psalm 23 one time, that'll be enough. Is that true? No, it's not. Read it again, they'll say. If I, if I just say the lines to this cherished old hymn one time, that will be enough, surely, won't it? No, it won't. Old dying saints know what David 
the psalmist knows sometimes, especially in the thick of trouble, what you want most is to have truth read over and over and over again, washed like waves over and over your soul. So, seven confessions, seven affirmations of what the psalmist knows. He knows this to be true. Seven rehearsals of truth the psalmist knows he needs if his heart, if your heart, is to find its song again. I'm going to give them to you. I'd encourage you to write them down, and then we're going to do something unusual. I'm going to ask you to participate a little bit. So you have to wake up, kind of sit up. I'll say them to you one by one, and then after you write it down as fast as you can. Don't take forever writing them down. Okay, we'll say them. We'll confess them, because that's what they are. They're confessions. And look, if you've come in here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus, nobody's going to look down at you for not confessing these with us. I just want you to hear all the good that God has for those of us who are his children. So let me say the confessions one after another. I'll pause after I say each one for you to write it down, and then we'll say each one together. First, confession number one, write this down. I have no good apart from God. Write that one down. You confess, I have no good apart from God. And once I see a few heads lifting up, we'll say it together. Say it with me. Ready? Look up here. We'll say it nice and slow. I have no good apart from God. We're confessing these things. Number two, there's only sorrow for the wicked. Number two, there's only sorrow for the wicked. Scribble that one on down. I'll say these again as we go on, so if you don't get it now, don't fret. All right, let's say this one together. There's only sorrow for the wicked. All right, number three, I have a beautiful inheritance. That's the third one. I have a beautiful inheritance inheritance. Jot that one down. All right, let's say that one together. I have a beautiful inheritance. Number four, God's word directs my life. God's word directs my life. All right, let's say it together. God's word directs my life. Remember, we're confessing these to be true. So what God's people do, we confess truth. Number five, God's presence makes me unshakable. Number five, God's presence makes me unshakable. All right, let's say that together, all together. God's presence makes me unshakable. Kids, kindergarten through fifth grade, we need your voices. Okay. Number six. God will raise me from the dead. How great is that? Number six. God will raise me from the dead. Okay, let's say that one together, all together. God will raise me from the dead. Finally, this one's a little bit longer. I'll give you a little bit more time to write it down. 
Number seven, God alone gives me true life, full joy, and unending pleasures. Say it again. God alone gives me true life, full joy, and unending pleasures. True life, full joy, and unending pleasures. All right, I think we can, this one's going to challenge us, okay? Let's try to say it together all with me. Ready? God alone gives me true life, full joy, and unending pleasures. Amen. All right, let's look at each of these briefly. Confession number one. We confess I have no good apart from God. We find this one in verse 2. Look with me at what David says in verse 2. David says to the Lord, it's confessional speech, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Trouble calls all of this into question. It, It makes us wonder, have we hitched our wagon to the wrong horse? Have I hitched my trailer to the wrong SUV? Am I on the wrong path? My life feels like it's full of trouble. Maybe there's a better way for me to go. And then the disorientation of trouble, we begin to ask questions that in good times we would never entertain. We begin to wonder, is there good outside of God? Which is why it's so important for us to make this confession, to say to the Lord and to our souls, I have no good apart from you. To say that, to speak that truth over our souls. I have no good apart from God. You know, in other places in the Bible, the Bible would prove that this is true. It would give reasons, evidence, arguments, kind of an apologetic for the fact that you don't have any good apart from God. But here, David is simply content to rehearse the truth. Sometimes, sometimes that's all our souls will need. Simply a rehearsal of the truth. Soul, you have no good beyond God. That's the first one, and it leads right into the second. The second one's like the other side of the coin. If the face side of the coin says, I have no good apart from God, the obverse side says, there's only sorrow for the wicked. Turn that coin over, and it affirms there is only sorrow for the wicked. That's confession two. And it's found in verses 3 to 4. Look at those verses. David says, As for the saints in the land, he's talking about believers, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Then verse 4, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. I won't even participate or mention those false ways of other gods. To reorient his heart in the middle of trouble, David confesses what he knows. What he's seen to be true, what he's heard God say, there is only sorrow on the path of the wicked. It's true, of course, that not every unbeliever, not everybody outside of God's family has a life full of trouble to the same extent or to the same intensity. But David isn't just talking about this life. He's talking about the next one too. 
In fact, in a similar psalm, in Psalm 73, David is perplexed by the bounty that wicked people experience, and it causes him to doubt, maybe I'm on the wrong path, until he sees the end of the wicked. He sees what sorrows accompany them into the next life, and David then ends that reflection saying this, Whom have I in heaven but you? Who is there? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Confession number three. I have a beautiful inheritance. Look at verses five and six. I have a beautiful inheritance. David confesses, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines, those are the boundaries of his inheritance, the lines, they've fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. When Israel entered the promised land, each tribe except for one, the Levites, was given a portion of the land, a portion of the entire inheritance. And all that tribe's good was produced by, it was provided by their part of the land. Its resources, whether it was natural resources or otherwise, its resources were the portion, were their portion, their cup, their lot, and their inheritance. David's not denying the goodness of the promised land that God led Israel into. He's not denying that. He's not denying the goodness of the new creation that Israel's promised land pointed to, that it signaled, that it illustrated, that it foreshadowed. He's not denying the goodness of those things. If you know Jesus, one day you will have a literal new heavens and new earth that will be your inheritance. He's not denying the goodness of that, but what he is saying is he's reminding himself and us of this that our best good and the source of every other good is God himself. He's just reminding us. He's reminding you. He's reminding me, hey, your best good, that's pretty great. That promised land, milk and honey, they're flowing. That new creation is, it, it will be fantastic. That is really good, but your best good isn't even that. It's me. All of our good, David reminds himself, He's in trouble and he's reminding himself, confessing, I have a beautiful inheritance. All of his good, all of our good, comes from God himself. So maybe you come in here today and the trouble you're in is you are out of work. You don't have a job or your job that you do have isn't meeting your needs. And you wonder, how am I going to support my family? How will I provide for their needs? I don't have a job. And God is reminding you he can provide for you. He is your best good. That job was a gift of his. That job he used to meet your needs, but he doesn't need that job to meet your needs. Your best and greatest good, the source of all of your good, isn't the things that God gives us. It is God himself. David rehearses this to his troubled soul. All right, confession four. Confession four, God's word, it directs my life. God's word directs my life. We find this one in verse 7. Look at verse 7. 
I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. David rehearses to his troubled soul where good and wise counsel are to be found. In better times, David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, he wouldn't have needed to remind himself of this. He knew that as we do. But now he does need that reminder. And I tell you what, I find this to be true for me. When I'm in trouble, I have to remind my soul, my, my soul, my, my body, it wants to run to everything else, all of the other places that I can solve my needs, the people I can talk to, the things I can read, the, the, the money I can spend. And I've got to remind myself like the psalmist and like you do, you're good. Your counsel, your instruction is to be found in God's word. Only God has the words of life. Where else can you go? David tells his heart this. All right, we're on confession five. I have my own confession to make. I feel this morning like I did early on at Christmases with my kids when I would buy them too many gifts. And they open one, but because there's another one right next to that, before the paper even hits the floor, they're scrambling to that other box. I feel a little bit like that this morning. God has given us these precious gifts, each one worth a whole Christmas. But before we can even look at it in its entirety, we're moving on. God wants to overwhelm us this morning with his goodness. He wants to overwhelm your troubled heart the songs that it can sing. So confession five, God's presence, God's presence, it makes me unshakable. Look at verse eight. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Before the advent of modern warfare, people carried shields. You don't need a shield when there's tanks and drones and airplanes and guns. But when people are throwing javelins and shooting arrows and trying to stab you with swords, you do need a shield. And oftentimes, people would wear those shields on their left arm. So on their right arm, they would carry their weapon, which makes you vulnerable on which side of your body? Makes you vulnerable on your right side, which is precisely where we need somebody standing next to us to protect us. It makes somebody fighting on your right side so important. And David reminds us that we don't just got somebody on our six, on having our back, on our right. We've got God, the mighty warrior, standing next to us, fighting our battles with us. We sing that. We affirm that. David is telling us, with God on your side, With God's presence, you will not be shaken. The trouble will stir. The trouble, think of yourself like a leaf. It will move you around, but it will not sever your connection from the branch. I can't do that. You will not be shaken. All right, that was confession five. Now that was verse eight. Now we're back at verse nine where we started. Remember, all of these confessions, they fuel that first word that begins verse 9, therefore, they fuel that. Because of these truths, David just confesses, his heart is gladdened, his whole being rejoices, his body, once so apparently vulnerable, now rests securely. 
Now confession six. This one's in verse 10, and it follows hard on verse 9. Notice how verse 10 begins. For, as we said, David's heart sings not only because of what we've just seen in verses 2 to 8, but also because what follows in verses 10 and 11. You, you know, David, he could have saved verse 9 to the very end of the poem. All of this great stuff, therefore, final, fi- finish the poem. He could have, but I think he wanted to highlight these last two confessions. He, he wanted to make them stand out, and bold and italics weren't available to David. You know this, and I'll remind you, he didn't write this psalm in Microsoft Word. So he sets these truths off spatially. He delays mentioning these last two to the very end, and they're worth the wait. This is Confession 6. God will raise me from the dead. Confession 6. God, we believe this, we confess this as Christians, God will raise me from the dead. You realize how big this one is. After all, death's the final enemy. If you take away death, what else do you have to fear? If God can beat your biggest and baddest enemy, what trouble is he going to have with lesser things? Death is no match for God. Listen to what he says in verse 10. He confesses, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That's the way in the Old Testament they refer to the grave. You're not going to abandon my soul there. Or let your Holy One see corruption. David says, trouble can do its worst. It can even take your life, but it won't separate you from God. Trouble can do its worst. It may even take your life, but it won't separate you from God. And what he says here, it's it's really extravagant. Especially that second part. Look at the end of verse 10. David says, You won't let your Holy One see corruption. No corruption. The New Testament reminds us in a couple of places, Peter does this, Paul does this, that at its fullest value, at its fullest meaning, that confession could only be made by who? By Jesus. That confession, see, no corruption could only be made by Jesus. He's the only one who immediately resurrected from the grave and saw no corruption. But the poetic language of the psalm is full enough, expansive enough to apply to every believer as well. Only Jesus saw no corruption, but no believer will see corruption permanently. Only Jesus saw no corruption, but no believer will see corruption permanently. We'll die, likely, if Jesus doesn't come back. It'd be great if he came back. His patience gives people time for repentance. We know this. We'll die, and our bodies will decompose in the grave. Worms will eat them up. But when Jesus returns, our bodies will be raised. They'll be raised just like Jesus was. That's how Paul says it. He says this perishable body, I think the King James even said corruptible, this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. 1 Corinthians 15. Corruption, decay, decomposition, death, they won't be the final word. 
They weren't for Jesus, and they won't be for us. All right, last one. David saves the best for last. In fact, it's one of the most beautiful things you'll find in your Bibles. In fact, if this is your first time kind of working through Psalm 16, and you haven't already done this, circle verse 11, put a star by it, some kind of emoji, maybe a smiley face, maybe take the reference and write it at the beginning of your Bible so that you'll look at it. It's one of the most beautiful things you'll find in all of God's holy word. Let's read it together. This is Confession 7. You, this is verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David reminds his own soul and ours that God alone gives true life, full joy, and unending pleasures. What David says here, it's almost identical to how he started, by saying, I have no good apart from God. Here he says, there is no life. Not the real, satisfying, according to the designer's instructions kind of life. There is no life apart from God, and don't miss Don't miss what attends this life. It's not just joy. Joy would be great, but it's not just joy, is it? It's full joy. And it's not just pleasures. It's forever pleasures. It's almost too good to be true. God's presence gives us full joy. Think of the joy you get from being with someone who you love and who loves you. You love them and they love you. Think of that joy. Now multiply that joy by the number of angels in heaven. There's a lot of them. And you'll get approximately to the amount of joy that we'll have when we're with God in his presence forever. And maybe, maybe that idea feels kind of ho-hum to you. Ah, God's presence is great, but what about this other stuff? You don't have to understand how it works to experience it in the new creation. You just will. And you won't have sin clouding your judgment, diverting your attention. You won't live in a cursed world full of sin that directs your attention away from what is most beautiful, God himself. And in his right hand or at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know the downside to a good vacation? It's not that it costs a lot. It's that it ends. Or what's the downside to a beautiful sunset? The sun, it sets, and it's dark. What about a profound conversation? They end. You can't talk to your friends your your whole life. Technically, maybe you could, but they end. The profundity ends. But not so with the pleasures that God gives. They are forever pleasures. Friends, they're the kind you're not going to find anywhere else. All right, let me end with this in conclusion. Maybe you came in these doors this morning right smack dab in the middle of trouble. You came in hurting. Trouble is crashing around you. Your boat is sinking like Lusitania. You've been torpedoed. You're turned upside down and you're inside out. Your shoulders are slumping. Your heart is aching. Your hands are hanging heavily. Listen, if you know the Lord... If you've taken refuge in God, 
If you believe in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and your hope for the life to come, I'm saying the same thing. I hope you hear that. If you're a Christian, these confessions are your confessions. They're yours. They're not just David's. They're not just some super elite kind of Christian. They're not just for the missionaries or for pastors. They're for us, all of us. Every single one of them is ours. And God gives them to you, all seven of them, so that right now, right in the middle of trouble, your heart can sing. Father, please, please give us hearts that grasp and believe the confessions that our mouths have made today. Do this generous work for us, we pray. Strengthen those with weak knees, with slumped shoulders, with hanging heads. Give them renewed joy. Reorient them. Reorient all of us to the goodness of your ways and to your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.